So we're going to study God's nature, but from a different perspective tonight. And uh, we're going to be looking at how his nature can be revealed through his actions. Amen. And how his nature can be revealed in the things that he loves, by what things he hates, and by what actions he takes. As we start to study this, we will be able to um, understand God's nature from a more practical point of view. And it's really amazing because God lays it out very plainly, the things that he hates. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For my thoughts, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Really, this is quite um, a deep and profound scripture because it tells us something about God's nature, that he is very merciful. He says he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. When we come to God in humility, when we come to God asking for mercy, he will, the Bible says, forgive us. Amen. There's only one sin that is not forgivable, and we will be looking at that a little later. But tonight we're going to examine, first of all, the things that the Bible tells us God hates, because we should hate them too. We should purge ourselves of those things that God hates. We want to be in alignment with his will. Amen. So what things do, does the Bible tell us that God hates? And so that we can easily be able to see these, they're laid out for us very clearly. A pride, lying tongue, killing others, hate, planning out our sin, that means premeditation, gossip, and troublemakers. It doesn't sound as it would be something that the Bible, uh, that God's nature would be so against, but it says he hates these things. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. You know, that number is significant because, of course, six is the number of a man. And God lays out some things that the Bible explicitly tells us are an abomination to him. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And he lays them out for us to understand. And as I've said before, sometimes things like pride are such um, stealthy sins that we don't even realize we have them. Amen. We're going to look at some of these in detail. Let's start with a proud look. And probably the best, one of the best examples in Scripture is of King Nebuchadnezzar. We find that after he had conquered Israel and all the surrounding nations, and he was at peace, he had built up this beautiful city of Babylon with huge walls that was, um, you know, so wide that chariots could run at the top. One day he came out on his balcony and he folded his arms and he looked at the great and beautiful city of Babylon. And he gave himself glory. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom 
by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. You know, he didn't even realize at that point that he was taking glory for himself. He didn't understand that God had allowed him to capture the Jews. It wasn't something that he had done by himself. It was something that God had allowed to use him as a form of punishment. Verse 31 says, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. The interesting thing about this is the year before, he had been warned by Daniel that this may happen. He had had a dream and he told Daniel, and Daniel explained to him that this dream was a warning about pride. God will many times give us warnings before we fall into that trap. But he did not listen. And the judgment then was pronounced on him, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. God will humble us. God will humble us. I I preached a message many years ago. It was titled, You Either Bow Down Now or Fall Down Later. But one way or another, this is one of the things that God outlines as being something that is an abomination. Because we have no power to be proud or to be stuck up. Everything we have, our very breath, comes from him. And when we uh, try and give ourselves glory, when we don't humble ourselves, then we are tempting God for judgment. The second thing that is spoken of and was probably the second sin is about lying, of course. And this is what happened in Genesis. The serpent deceived Eve. Genesis 3, 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You know, the the trouble with this lie is that it has elements of truth in it, and that's what makes it powerful. An outright obvious lie is not so tempting, but when it almost sounds truthful, when it has elements of truth, that's when it becomes really powerful. And of course, um, I have been teaching that I believe that this was something that Eve wanted to do. It didn't take much to deceive her because it was something she already wanted to do. In John 8:44, Jesus explains that lies, deception, comes from Satan. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. No wonder today that deception and, and, and deceit is rampant where people don't believe or can identify what is true anymore. It was the question that Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? I hope that if you have the Holy Spirit and you're listening and walking according to the word of God, that that's not a question that you need to answer because the spirit of God is truth. We're going to be looking at that a little bit later. In John fourteen six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus claimed to be not just 
um, a good person or uh, someone, but he is the spirit of truth itself. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, why does God hate uh, lying lips? Why is deception so uh, opposite to his nature? Well, right there is the reason, because it is opposite to his nature. In fact, the, the two things that are pre, uh, preeminent in God's attributes is one, that he is love. Secondly, that he cannot lie. So something that is a lie or a deception comes against God in so many ways. Because at his essence, he is the spirit of truth. In fact, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was speaking about it, he said in John sixteen thirteen, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. What we're studying tonight is God's nature by the things that he says he hates. And from there we begin to see the difference in God's nature and man's nature. Because some people get into the habit of deceit and deception so that they even do the worst thing, which is deceive themselves. They start to believe what they're saying. In fact, Hitler said, um, or was it Goebbels, his propaganda chief said, keep telling the lie as much as possible till even you believe it. And that is Satan's plan. He will keep telling us things that God doesn't love us, that he is finished with us, that we are hopeless, that we cannot be saved. And because he is the father of lies, this is when you have to block out your ears. Amen. And the reason why the world can't receive it, it's because they like that. They like being told things that make them feel good. In John fourteen seventeen, Jesus goes on to say this, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. That was such a a strong verse prefiguring the fact that Jesus is also the Holy Spirit, the very essence of truth. John 15 26, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you, unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Amen. So the very essence of God is truth. It's the very nature of God. God cannot lie. In Hebrews, I believe, 9, it says, by two immutable things that it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot go back upon his word. And that's why his actions for us seem so strange because once God has given his word, he can't just change it. We can change our word. We can promise something and break it. But the very nature of God is truth. Amen. And I'm so glad of that because he has given, the Bible said, exceeding great and precious promises that he cannot go back. What we have to do is fulfill our part and then those promises will be fulfilled in our life. The other thing that Jesus, uh, or the Bible, I should say, makes mention that God hates is hands that shed innocent blood. Innocent blood. We see this happen, of course, uh, many times in the Bible, but maybe one of the best examples of that was when King Herod decided he would kill all the children, all the children in his kingdom that were up to two years old because he wanted to make sure that he had killed the Messiah. Of course, he was no doubt demonically inspired. Matthew 2, verse 16. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof. That means everywhere where he ruled from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. God created us not to shed innocent blood. Amen. Now, when we are um, in a defensive situation, that's not innocent blood. We, we, we have the right to defend ourselves if we are attacked. But we have no right to go and just kill someone or babies that are innocent. Amen. Exodus 1.15. We see that Satan, though, always wants to shed innocent blood. In Exodus 1.15, uh, Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, commanded the midwives to commit genocide on the Hebrews. In Exodus 1.15, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name was one was Shifra, and the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then he shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then he shall live. Little did he know he was pronouncing the eventual judgment that would come upon Egypt. He was the one who came up with the judgment of killing the firstborn, of killing all the male children. Hands that shed innocent blood. God is not happy with that. But we see with nearly every one of these sins, there was the possibility for mercy. We look at David. He killed Uriah. That was certainly innocent blood. And yet God had mercy upon him. We're going to look at that a little bit more because there is a sin where God will not have mercy. The other thing that he speaks about is a heart that devises wicked imaginations, wicked plots, wicked schemes. And probably another great example of that was Jezebel, who had married the the king uh, of Israel whose name was Ahab. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and you know the story. He he saw his neighbor uh, Naboth having this beautiful vineyard, and he wanted it. But he could not legally get it. So his wife devised a wicked imagination, a way to tell lies and to steal the property. And so she sent letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. She, she, she did something to try and fool him, to make him think everything was okay, that he was going to be um, uh, celebrated, that he was going to be the honored guest after this fast. And set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. This is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. But you know what the Bible says? Whatsoever a man or woman, for that matter, sows, that shall he also reap. And you know the end of Jezebel. In the end, she was thrown out of the window, and the dogs licked up her blood. Don't think that you can get away with doing an abomination and without repentance and thinking that God has forgotten it. No, he will not. The Bible says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's why we want to be sowing some good seed, some good words, some good deeds, hallelujah, some things that will please God. What we're looking at tonight are the things, some of the things that God hates because this shows us his nature. 
His perfection. If God's, God hates these things, we ought to as well. Amen. Now, this is one that may, may, you may think is so innocent. Why would God be so upset about that? But he says, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. To sow discord, to gossip, to plant false stories, to even plant real stories. But if they don't uh, um, have any virtue, the Bible says that we're not to think about those things. First Peter 4 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. I tell people, you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not somebody else's salvation. You can't do that. You have to work out your own salvation. In Luke 6, 41, he says, why beholdest the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Why are you looking at the, the little thing that's in his eye when you've got a whole big beam sticking out of yours? But perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? It's amazing how so many times we, we get critical of others, but yet we cannot see ourselves, how we appear, how maybe proud or arrogant we may be. In fact, Luke 6.42 says, Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. We have to be careful about being a hypocrite and criticizing people and judging people when we have the same thing or maybe some slightly different thing that we need to take care of. Amen. As I said, we have to work out our own salvation. Amen. I, I don't have time uh, for someone else's salvation. I have to make sure my own salvation. Yes, I will pray for them. Yes, I will encourage them. Yes, I will keep, keep them in my prayers. I will lift them up. But I'm not going to be there to, to beat them up because I am not the one that died for them. I didn't hang on Calvary. What I can do is encourage them to love God, to do the right thing. Amen. Amen. The next thing he says is a false witness that speaketh lies. Now, some of these may sound the same, but no, they're slightly different. Mark 14, verse 57. We see this happen to Jesus himself. They could not find anything to really accuse him of, so they brought false witnesses. And they arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. So in fact, the, the witnesses that they brought didn't always agree in their accusations. So technically, they should not have been able to convict Jesus of anything. Because in the Old Testament, it says, and under the law, it was in the mouth of two or three witnesses. We must never um, stand up to be a false witness. We cannot do that. It's one of the things that God says is an abomination. He that soweth discord among the brethren. Again, we're looking at the nature of God through the things that he hates. He hates when brothers and sisters... Um, have issues against one another. He hates that. He wants to, there to be unity 
in the body. Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. You know, it may be sad, but sometimes if, if someone keeps on doing that, you have to just kind of avoid them because all you're doing is giving them more ammunition. It is sad, but you have to leave it in the hand of the Lord. Pray for them. You know, if it's something that you can go to them and confront them with in, a, in love, then do so. But if they're just always got, as they say, sharp elbows, always upset, always something is not suiting them, always uh, upset, then there's something in their nature that they need to submit and give to God. Verse 18 says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, their own lust, their own self-satisfaction. It's because I'm not happy, I'm going to make you unhappy. It says, And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Just spreading a little rumor. Oh, pastor didn't shake my hand or this sister didn't come and ask me to do this or that. That's spreading discord. What we need to do is to show love. Amen. For all you know, that person just forgot. Amen. We have to be willing to give grace because we want grace. Without being willing to give grace, we shan't get grace. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers... For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, that set of seven that is described in, in, in Proverbs, and it's divided into six, and then a seventh one, um, are the things that the Bible explicitly says are an abomination to God. But there are also other sins that can cause the second death. Things that the Bible calls out that will lead us to the lake of fire. So we're going to look at that. In Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, But the fearful, wow, fearful? What does that mean? Well, it's really speaking about faithless. It's when you don't trust, you have fear. It's speaking about not trusting God. If you don't trust God, He can do nothing for you. The fearful and then the unbelieving, that means someone who is presented with truth and rejects it, what is God going to do? If you're, if you're given truth and you don't want to believe it, there's not much more God can do. He's not going to force you to accept him. The abominable, that is the headline for the seven the sins that we, we talked about. Um, murderers, that seems obvious. That means someone who kills someone without a cause, with, with just malice or for uh, their own fleshly desires or for hate or for enmity. Uh, the immoral, right? That means uh, someone who is breaking God's uh, laws as far as morality. It says murderers, whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Amen. Sorcerers, the workers of the occult, people who try to contact fallen beings, who try to work with familiar spirits. In other words, they, they really sold their soul to the devil. Because the Bible tells us that people who do this without repentance, this is what's going to happen in Revelation twenty-two fifteen. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. What does that mean, whosoever loveth and maketh a lie? It means someone who 
loves doing sin, who is enjoying it, who has no conscience, who, who has no regrets, really just revels in their sinfulness and in being deceitful. This will lead you to the lake of fire. The Bible calls it the second death. Amen. That's what's going to happen if we go down that path. These are all things that the Bible says God hates, that God has no um, uh, room for in his kingdom. Amen. Now, all of these are sins that can cause the second death. That means to the, in, cast into the lake of fire. But there is a sin that is an unforgivable sin. All of these sins that we've, we've done so far, for the most part, if someone were to turn, if someone were to change, if someone were to repent, we have so many examples in Scripture of people who did very, very wicked, abominable things, and yet God had mercy. That's also part of his nature. As the very first Scripture I read, it said that he would be merciful. Yes, those things are an abomination, but when someone genuinely repents, when someone humbles themselves, when they come to their senses, as in the case of the prodigal son, we saw that the father was ready to forgive, to hide his mess, to cover him up, to put on the ring of sonship. But there is a sin, there is a place we can get to, where as the Bible says in Hebrews, we have crucified the Lord afresh. And in that scripture it says, there remaineth then, no more sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, there were sins that were unforgivable. As we've taught before, there were sins against your fellow man. You could lie, you could cheat, you could even kill. And you could get forgiveness because that was against your fellow man. There was a trespass offering. You had to confess. You had to either run to the city of refuge. You could stay there until the high priest died, and then you could have your freedom. There was a mechanism to be forgiven or delivered out of some of these things in the Old Testament. Again, this shows God's nature that, yes, he is a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of perfection. But he's also, thank be to heaven, a God of mercy and a God of grace. There were ways you could escape. But there was one sin, even in the Old Testament, and it continues to this day, that is not forgivable. It's a sin unto death. And it's really pretty simple and straightforward to define. But in the Old Testament, it was a direct premeditated sin against God directly. If you premeditatedly sinned, knowing uh, it was wrong and it was a sin against God, There was no uh, sin offering you could bring. There was no burnt offering you could bring. There was no remediation. You would be cut off, as the scripture says, from your people. You would die an unrighteous death. In the New Testament, it becomes much clearer what this sin is. And we're going to look at the example that Jesus had in Matthew 12 and 31. And again, this is telling us and shedding light on God's nature. Matthew 12, 31. Wherefore, this is Jesus, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Why is there a distinction against blasphemy against the Holy Ghost specifically, but not against Jesus? Look at this, verse 32. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, 
it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, and I put spirit of truth there, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now that's a very serious, serious thing that Jesus said. That you could commit a sin against the Holy Spirit that would not be forgiven. Why, why is there a distinction? Well, the easiest way to understand it is that in the Old Testament, you could be forgiven with the trespass offering if you trespassed against your fellow man. If you confessed and if you brought restoration and if you um, restored what you had stolen or if you had um, hurt someone, you would have to give them compensation. So that was a sin against your fellow man. And you see, Jesus now becomes our fellow man. So he says, if you can speak against me, it can be forgiven. It can be, but the Holy Spirit, it cannot. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the essence of truth. That is the reason. It's the essence of what God is. And if you are against truth, there is no, there is no um, compromise on that. In the example that Jesus said this, he had just cast out some demons out of some people and the Pharisees watching said he did it by Beelzebub. Now, they knew that that was not true. Jesus knew they knew it was not true. Yet they made a confession with their mouth that was against revealed truth. So again, it's like trying to wake up someone who is pretending to be asleep. You can't do it. They spoke against the spirit of truth, knowing what they were saying was a lie. Therefore, they made a choice with knowledge. When you make a choice with knowledge against the spirit of truth, it's a very dangerous thing because what it means, you have chosen to reject the essence of what God is. It's not an easy sin to commit because, first of all, you have had to know truth to reject it. That means people who sinned ignorantly, Paul says he winked at their ignorance because they did not know. Jesus on the cross said about the soldiers, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Pilate, he said, what is truth? He was not sure. He knew something was special about this man, but he didn't have the conviction. He did not know. So this kind of sin can only happen when someone absolutely knows the truth, but they choose consciously to reject it. And that's why it is unforgivable. Let's look at it some more. John chapter 8, verse 24. Because this also reveals the nature of God, that he is the essence of truth. He is the very essence of truth. And when God has come into your lives, the Bible says uh, there, there remaineth no more uh, a sacrifice for sin for those who have tasted the gift. If you have tasted the gift of the Holy Spirit and you reject it after knowing it to be true, that's a very dangerous place because you are rejecting consciously the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. John 8, 24 says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. 
I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. In other words, is truth. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. That's why Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to God. He is the essence of truth in the Holy Spirit. And he's also the thing, the life that resurrects us when he comes back. This is the reason and the essence of why God destroyed the world in Noah's time. The Bible tells us they became willingly ignorant. In other words, they denied the truth of what had happened. They all knew the creation. They all absolutely knew the truth of it. There was no evolution theory because down to the seventh generation, there was Adam. There was Adam down to the seventh generation. Up to 10 million people could have talked with Adam. There was no... um, I'm not sure if that's real or if it's a myth because there he was. There was the unbroken chain of grandparents all the way back to Adam. And that's why Peter says they were willingly ignorant. That means they chose to put down truth. That's why once you have come to God and you know the truth of this word and you have been filled with the Spirit, it's a dangerous thing to say it's fake. Now, you can backslide. You can you can fall. You may not be able to... But to deny the truth of it is another matter. 2 Peter 3.2 says that he may be mindful. That means he's saying this to bring it to mind. This is again showing us God's nature of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, people who mock, people who... uh, want to say it's not true, that it's fake, walking after their own lusts, their own desires, because it suits them, because they don't want to change. Not that they don't really deep inside know the truth of it, but they've got to say something else, because if they don't, they come under condemnation. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? We've been hearing about this for, since I was first at church. For since the father, since my grandfather fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter puts it this way, for this they willingly are ignorant. That means to come to that conclusion, you're ignoring what's going on in the world. The only way you can say everything is the same and it's never going to change is to ignore what's going on in the world. Last night I was looking at the PBS station and they were showing a volcano that happened, explosion last year, and they said it's the greatest uh, recorded explosion that has ever happened. Just last year. This is fulfillment of some of the things Jesus said. So Peter puts it this way, for this they willingly are ignorant. You have to be willingly ignorant to not see where this world is going, to think that there is going to be peace and contentment. Because he goes on to illustrate this one thing that has been found worldwide and established so many times that there was a worldwide flood. Everywhere in the world that scientists have looked, they have found strata that has been laid down by water. For this they are willingly are ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. The reason why is because they denied revealed truth. In Romans, it says that they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. They willingly chose to worship the fallen beings 
instead of God Most High. They willingly chose to ignore the preaching of Noah as he was building his ark. The destruction was coming. They said, well, it's never rained before. It's never happened before. The ice caps have never melted before. The poles have not shifted uh, in 20,000 years. We haven't seen any meteorites destroy any cities yet. Willingly ignorant. All of this is showing God's nature. In fact, Paul says in Romans that, that there will be no excuse because what may be known of God is manifested by his very creation. Romans 1.25, here is the scripture. Who changed the truth of God into a lie. Worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations. When you reject truth, it's replaced by corruption. That's what's happened to Satan. He can't think straight. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. That means their thoughts could not bring anything to fruition. And their foolish heart was darkened. When you reject truth and you believe a lie, it never can work out because your whole uh, wisdom uh, direction is corrupted. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's what we see science trying to do now, trying to find the origin of life, where they cannot find it on a single speck of planet anywhere they go, only on this planet. Everywhere they go, there is no life. It is like someone cleaned it out. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. This is happening right now. The AIs are going to be coming. They're going to be smarter. And they're going to make that as to be the God, to be worshipped. In the Old Testament, of course, they made images of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so because they did that, God turned his back upon them. That's what verse 24 says. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. We have an example of this denying revealed truth. And maybe people, when they read it, they just don't understand why God was so harsh. But I'm trying to explain to you there was more to this story than what you just see. Let's look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, in other words, being in on the plot, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter and said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? This was the problem. He was lying to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. Now, the scripture is not explicit, but no doubt, I believe there must have been some prophetic word from the spirit that pronounced that the money had been held back. And Ananias decided he would bluff it out. 
But he wasn't really lying to Peter. He was lying to the Spirit. That's why it's very dangerous when the Spirit now. There's many people that give prophetic utterances, but most of the time it may be of flesh or they get carried away. But if it's truly from the Spirit, be careful, especially if you know it to be true. This was the case because Peter said, you're lying to the Holy Ghost. This is what brought death. This is what brought death. He was not lying to Peter. He was lying to the Holy Ghost. And we see that this is what happened. So the only way to lose is when we cross that line. When we don't forgive. When we are so caught up with our own flesh that we will not acknowledge sin and repent. Mark eleven twenty five. And when he stand praying, forgive. Again, we're showing God's nature. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Remember, trespasses was against your fellow man. But if he do not forgive, if you withhold that forgiveness, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is not optional for the Christian. This is what God demands for us to do. We cannot hold grudges. That doesn't mean we are going to be stupid now if someone has repeatedly done us something but we have to hold uh, no hurt no 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 bad feeling i should say against them yes we will be hurt but we have to pray for them we have to still love them as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive now it sounds easy but maybe it's not so easy when it's us in the situation ephesians 4:32 says be kind tender-hearted one to another, right? Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, forbearing one another. That means, means, yes, that person is annoying me, but giving them grace. And forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ also forgave you, so also do he. This is what we're called to. If we're going to be like God in nature, then just as He forgives so graciously when we come to Him in true humility and repentance, we have to do the same thing. Amen. We have to do the same thing. Because the only way to lose is to commit that sin unto death. 1 John 5.16 again brings that about. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. And he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There will be forgiveness. David got forgiven of adultery. David got forgiven of murder. Many other cases. Uh, Jacob got forgiven for deceit and for lying and stealing from his brother. Uh, Joseph's brothers tried to kill him. They got forgiven by Joseph. There is great forgiveness as long as it's not against the spirit of truth. In, In other words, rejecting the very essence of our Creator who has revealed it to us. Ignorance can be forgiven. What cannot be forgiven is willing ignorance. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. John is saying here, if someone has committed a sin unto death, that means denying the revealed truth of the Holy Spirit, then you can't pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Nearly every other sin can be forgiven with true repentance. 
But we cannot deny revealed truth. It's not an easy sin to commit. You have to have tasted of that heavenly gift. That's what the scriptures, you have to tasted that heavenly gift. Hebrews 10.25 says this, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, lifting one another up, encouraging one another, and so much more as he see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. In the Old Testament it says here, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose he shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. May I never cross that line. May you never cross that line. Because that is rejection of of God's essence itself. The only way to lose is to reject revealed truth. Hebrews 6, 4 goes on and explains, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, in other words, have come to the truth, understood it, believed it, seen miracles, knew the truth, and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. It's impossible And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now this is not speaking about someone who does some sin. A backslider. It's speaking of someone who verbally and and makes a choice and say it's not true. That was all fake. It's not a matter of just committing a sin and not coming to church or not coming to church for years, but it's denying the truth of what you received. That is the problem. Denying the truth. In other words, killing the Spirit of Christ in you. If they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Remember, Moses was only to strike the rock once. When he struck the rock the second time, it caused him not to enter into the promised land. We cannot strike the rock twice. Amen. We have to trust that God is with us. Hebrews 10.39 says this, But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition. That means unto loss, unto destruction. But of them that believe in the saving of the soul. Romans 8.11 But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Amen. By his spirit that dwelleth in you. Amen. This is the lesson today that we have to make sure, amen, that all the things that God hates that we hate, that if there's anything that we're doing that is not pleasing to him, that we can come to a throne of grace, we can get mercy. What we can't do is deny revealed truth. We can't be willingly ignorant, 
but we have to come boldly to that throne of grace. The Bible says there to obtain mercy. Amen. Wherever you are tonight, you can obtain mercy. God's grace is full and overflowing. We are still in our day of atonement. We can still be delivered. We can still, at this time, call upon the name of the Lord for mercy. David did. He wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. He received forgiveness. He received grace. And you can too. Hallelujah. Let's bow our our hearts as we close this Bible study. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and your grace. Lord, help us to draw near, hallelujah, with a conscience sprinkled with your blood, O God, that we can come to appreciate all that you have done, your love and your grace. Pour it upon us, O God. Help us to be witnesses, O God, of your mercy, Lord God, an example of your blessing. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Hallelujah.